Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Shlom. Ever since the ancient Romans started building roads, nature has been impacted by human transportation corridors. Now, in a world that has around 40 million miles of roadways encircling the planet, wildlife is impacted more than ever. And that has spawned a new and important scientific discipline called road ecology. On this program, we'll look into the science of how nature is impacted by our roads and highways and how understanding it can help lead to better ways of building infrastructure that minimizes those impacts from road kills to migration disruption. Our guest and guide is Fraser Schilling, the director of the Road Ecology Center, which is part of the Institute of Transportation Studies at UC Davis. He joins us now to talk about this interesting and important topic. Fraser Schilling, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. I was just learned recently that there is a Center for Road Ecology. How long has it been in existence at uh, UC Davis? The center's been around for a little over 15 years, and I've been affiliated with it most of that time. And tell us a bit about your background. Like, how did you come into the field of road ecology? Well, a lot of people who are in road ecology came from a different direction. In my case, I was looking at what's called landscape ecology, which is understanding how ecosystem processes work at a lar- at larger spatial scales and how different processes are linked together. So that might be fire, erosion, uh, wildlife movement, a lot of things that occur at those large extents. And can you give us, uh, what what's the definition of road ecology? So it's the uh, study of how transportation systems impact ecology. And by saying it like, like that, I'm kind of adopting rail. Uh, and actually, a lot of us think about other things that we call linear infrastructure as well. So canals. Canals are kind of like roads in a lot of ways uh, mm-hmm. without the traffic because they are they're a pretty significant barrier to, to wildlife movement and other kinds of, of movements. Uh, so it's studying the impact of those systems like roads uh, and traffic on natural environment. And that could be wildlife. It could be brake lining uh, material coming off and affecting fish. Uh, it could be noise pollution that extends well beyond the roadway. There's a lot of different angles to it. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about canals before, but that makes sense because unlike a natural system like a stream or a river that wildlife can cross, you know, if they need to, um, canals are like a death trap. Yeah, they can be. There are some animals, animals with paws will do better on a concrete, you know, an angled concrete surface like the edge of a canal. But if it's Mm -hmm. a steep-sided or vertical-edged canal, then yeah, it's definitely a death trap because there's nowhere to go. Eventually, at the end of that flow, it's going to go into a pipe. It's going to hit a steel grating. Yeah, so a lot of animals do die in canals. Yeah. And when we talk about road ecology, you know, one of the most important factors, of course, is is roadkill. And how I came to be interested in this, I, I read a report you guys did recently on roadkill. There's a lot of data that you can learn from collecting roadkill information. So I'm I'm curious, where do you get the data from? How do you how do you go about collecting? Where does that come from? CHP places like that. Yeah, so there's a, there's a variety of different sources, and it goes back to what you said at the beginning, which is it's a well, it's not necessarily the most important part of road ecology, but it's a very visible part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's um, the thing that a lot of people can recognize and identify with, because if you've driven down almost any road anywhere in the world, 
uh, for long enough, you'll see a dead animal because they try to cross and they get hit and they get killed. Sure. There are estimates that uh, as many as 100 to 300 million birds are killed per year in the U.S., and no one really knows the number of mammals and reptiles and amphibians, but we could estimate that, let's say, a billion animals are killed every year on roads in the U.S. So if you think about California, we have about 10% of everything, 10% of landmass, 10% of roads, things like that. It's not exactly true, but it's roughly true. So let's say in California, 100 million birds, mammals, reptiles, and amphibians are killed every year on California roads, then that means about 300,000 per day are getting killed. Uh, we only collect a tiny, tiny sample of those. Uh, we still have the biggest roadkill database in the country, but we only have 200,000 records of roadkill for the state, which means that we're only getting a tiny fraction of the total. But it's it's people like you and I, it's um, people who are interested in natural history, people who are conservation-minded. Uh, they could be expert scientists. They could be expert natural historians. Uh, whoever they are, they collect a picture of an animal uh, on the side of the road, and that becomes part of our database. So, you know, b besides, you know, uh, people like me that might take a picture of, you know, roadkill and send it into or collect data, what are the variety of ways that you go about, you know, acquiring data? Yeah. So, as you might imagine, when somebody drives down the highway and hits a larger animal, or actually swerves to avoid hitting a large animal and gets into a crash, the California Highway Patrol or Sheriff's Department, somebody's gonna respond. And that results in, uh, or can result in a record in the California Highway Patrol's online database. And we can harvest those data to add to our total data collection. That tends to be just records for large animals. So if somebody hits a deer, uh, then we're gonna get that data. But um, if they hit something smaller, then the California Highway Patrol is not going to respond to that. They're not going to report that. And so we wouldn't necessarily get that record. But we're going to get it for the larger animals that are where a crash takes place. Yeah, that makes total sense. I know my daughter had a collision with a deer on Highway mm. 395 in Mono County back in the early 2000s. And, you know, we were very fortunate that she was okay. You know, the deer... Um, the deer ran off, who knows if it survived, but a collision with an animal that size can be quite a dangerous experience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah, there's it's it's kind of unknown what proportion of those injured animals survive. Mm -hmm. uh, no one's really done a follow-up. But if we look at another country where they take roadkill more seriously, in Sweden, if you hit a large animal on a roadway, you have by law, you have to report it. And it's not because you're going to get in trouble. They want to know what's going on. They they treat wildlife as a valued social resource. And so if you hit an animal, they want to know. And if um if it's an animal that's hunted, when you report it to the police, they will call and, and if, if it's not dead on the scene. Um, or even if it is, they will call a registered hunter in the area to either come and retrieve the animal carcass or to pursue the injured animal and put it out of its misery. And the reason mm -hmm. they do that is that if an animal is hit uh, by a car on a highway, even if it runs off, chances are it's going to die. So yeah. they want to be able to um, put it out of its misery. And then also that becomes part of 
if you're a hunter, that's part of your permitted um, hunted animals. Yeah, well, we we do live in you know the era of big data, and I know it's important for for your work. I saw that you there's something called the CROS, the California Roadkill Observation System. Can you tell me a bit about you know what that's all about? Sure. Yeah, and because we like to make up funny or we think they're funny acronyms, we call that CROSS. 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 Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I don't know if we would call it that now, but it's an open platform. It's been going since 2009. And it's our primary method for collecting observations from anybody who wants to report them. It's kind of like iNaturalist, except we started up a little bit, well, around the same time as they did. And it's specifically for roadkill. Uh, you can actually report roadkill anywhere in the world using CROSS, even though it's called the California Roadkill Observation System. And you can use a smartphone to, to collect data. So in other words, you would uh, let's say you have an iPhone, you'd open up the Safari browser. You can take a picture of the roadkill with your location turned on and you just press one button and you can upload that to our system. So it allows everybody to participate. And really we get, I mean, we get data from a lot of different people and they're, they, when they identify the species, they're very accurate. And I think a lot of people are careful about how they do that. Uh, we do verify those identifications and the identification accuracy is way over 95%. So it's 97, 98%, meaning people are either very, they're good at identifying animals or they're careful about how they do that. Some people don't. They'll just upload the picture, which is fine, because then we can identify them. So it's a pretty simple process if you have a smartphone just to do that. Uh, you know, the only caveat would be, to, you know, be safe out there. Don't become part of the roadkill situation yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. While we're on the subject of acronyms, I also saw something called REZ, road effect zone. So what's yeah. what is the what is the definition of the road effect zone? Yeah. So um, it's the area outside the road that the road is affecting. Right. So one simple way to think about that is if you are standing in front of your house and shouting or singing, your neighbors can hear you. So your effect zone, the area that you're affecting, extends well beyond your yard, your property, unless you live on a big rural property. But other people can hear you. And that's true for roads and traffic. So as we drive down the road, wildlife uh, that are ha even half a mile away are going to hear that vehicle. So that you think about that half a mile distance on either side of a road. And if you took every road in California and you put that ribbon around it of where the sound traffic sound gets to, uh, it's a pretty huge area of the state. So we call that area the road effect zone. It's not just noise. It could be air pollution. Uh, it could be light from your headlights. Um, it could be uh, things that, that come off the car. So rubber tires break down over time, brake linings, all of that can get into the soil and the water. And so there's a lot of pollutants of different types that we are releasing when we drive, and they go out into the surrounding environment and affect it. I was thinking, especially with with the case of noise, you know, aside from collisions, the, the case of noise and light pollution can be very disorienting for wildlife. Yep, yep. It's often a in something that inhibits them. It's a barrier to them. They see the noise and the light, uh, and they think, okay, that's something. I, it's unknown, and for a lot of species unknown is scary. I don't know what that is. It's an alien. I'm going to stay away from it. And so if they're trying to go from A to B, uh, they may not try because of 
the traffic wall, essentially. It's a wall of traffic, noise and light. Now, some of them obviously do, which results in the first thing we talked about, which is roadkill. And that's because even if they're afraid, sometimes they have to do it. If you're a deer and you live, you and your herd live on the side of a hill uh, or on a mountain, but the primary water source in the summer is down at the bottom in a stream and there's a road in between, you've got to cross that road to get to the water. And so we've we've set up those walls of traffic, those roads, regardless of what their needs are. And sometimes they're between the kitchen and the bedroom. Sometimes they are between the, you know, your house and your neighbor's house kind of thing. So animals still need to move around and, and do their things, their social things, their feeding and so on. Uh, and our roads get in the way. And that's where the problems come up. And I would suppose that it's fairly safe to say that most of the problems would occur at night. Yep. Yeah. Why? why? One is it's hard to see the animal, right? Uh, until they enter your your headlight cone and then you can suddenly see them. And uh, that can be a scary moment, I'm sure. Yep. And then the other is that as we've increased how much we drive and we build houses out into habitat and uh, we basically invade habitat spaces, we're changing how animals behave. And animals that might previously have, if they're able to work in the day and the night, and now they see us more in the daytime, maybe they'll go in and behave more in the nighttime. They'll move around and eat and so on because there's there's less of our presence there. So there may be a shift of wildlife behavior into nighttime. And then if you if you think about that, you put that on top of um, how far you can see at night. Let's say wildlife are moving around more at night, and now they're moving across roads at night more often, then they're more likely to get hit. And they can't predict, they don't know that that's how it's going to turn out. They're afraid of us, so they try to stay away from us. We're around in the daytime, so they think, okay, I'll move around at night. Uh, but that puts a different kind of puts them at different kind of risk of getting hit by a car. Yeah, and I'm also thinking, you know, we also are, are living in an era of lots of cameras. There are a lot of people I know have trail cameras, wildlife cameras on their property here in rural parts of Northern California where I live. Uh, people, you know, sh send me pictures all the time of, you know, hey, a mountain lion was in my yard, or you know, look at this fox or whatever. So you have a lot more cameras out there. Do you guys take advantage of that? Yeah, there's a lot of information coming in from people. And 10, 20 years ago, we might have had a different kind of opinion in science about those kinds of data. It wasn't based on uh, that data not being good. It was based on a prejudice, basically, in science, thinking that, well, if, an, if a regular person who's not a scientist collects data, we don't know if it's any good. I don't believe that at all. I think that that's an unverified assumption usually. And I, I don't always trust everybody's opinion and observations about nature, but I think there's a lot of good information uh, coming from regular people who live on, on landscapes uh, who aren't trained as scientists. But if you live somewhere for 10, 20, 30 years, you know, and you look around, if you observe, you know how things are working. You can see it happening in front of you. And um, there's some places in the North state where we're doing some work where on an email thread, I was part of some hunters were saying, Hey, we're seeing fewer deer. And it looks like, uh, you know, these hunting opportunities are going down. 
And what that means is that there may be just fewer deer, right? There's a smaller population. Well, that's totally consistent with what we find with roadkill data, where we're getting fewer roadkill deer, uh, which is consistent with the idea there's just fewer deer. And that's a big deal. And that really comes from, uh, some of those things come from people making those kinds of observations. Yeah, because you know you might think, well, fewer roadkill data that sounds good, but in fact, in fact, it's probably indicating that there's fewer fewer animals. Right. Yeah, and that for for animals that get eaten by other animals, so basically the prey species, uh, it's it's a good indicator that there's fewer of them. If you get fewer roadkilled animals, uh, like deer, for example, it probably is because there's just fewer deer walking around. For other species. You may get uh, different kind of responses because they're mountain lions, for example. Um, if you have fewer deer, mountain lions have to go further to find them, right? You just have a, a smaller chance of getting a deer if you're a mountain lion. So you have to go much further to find them. And that means they're going to cross more roads. So they actually could get hit more often. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we return, we'll continue our conversation with the director of the Road Ecology Center at UC Davis, Fraser Schilling. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening to Blue Dot. Let's return now to our visit with Fraser Schilling as we explore the science of road ecology. Dr. Schilling is the director of the Road Ecology Center at UC Davis. I was looking through some of your information and, and your website, and I saw that there's there's a map of wildlife vehicle conflict, you know, the hot spots of where, where this stuff is really happening. And I thought that was really interesting. Let's talk about some of the places uh, that are of, of the most concern. Like, what are some of the places that you are, like, really targeting for study that are seem to be, you know, the, the problem places in California? Right. And and I want to emphasize that these are, I'll, I'll certainly do that. These are places where we have data. For most wildlife species, we have no idea how many there are. And we mm -hmm. usually don't know how many are getting killed or where they're getting killed. So I'll, you know, give you some hotspot areas as examples. But this is based on incomplete information. If we lived in a different country, maybe we would have different priorities. But here we, we don't do that as much. Uh, so in California in general, the highways with the highest number of large animals getting hit that we know about uh, are basically Interstate 280, Interstate 680. In the Bay Area. The Bay Area, yeah, yeah. US 101 in Marin County. And then you start getting into 50 near Placerville. Let's see, 49 near Placerville. So you get into the Sierra Nevada uh, foothills, and there's quite a few there. And what you'll notice about both of those is that it's where we have large areas of wildlife habitat next to large volumes of traffic. And that's pretty much the key, yeah. is wherever you have that occurring, you're going to have lots of roadkill. And, and it doesn't mean those populations can support that. Uh, it could be that wildlife are moving in from other areas and getting hit. So it's, it's not necessarily a sustainable uh, phenomenon. Yeah, and I was also thinking of I-80, crossing the Sierra Nevada, because that's a major, yep. major freeway, major highway. And yep. uh, you're also, you know, with, with that and, and 50, 
um, maybe to a lesser extent, but you know, definitely, uh, you're cutting off the ability for animals like mountain lions to be able to, you know, roam their natural range because they have mountain lions have huge territories. Yep. Yeah, they do. And it's uh, especially as you go inland, those territories get bigger because it's drier. Mm-hmm. And anywhere it's drier, you tend to have lower productivity and and therefore you're going to support fewer wildlife. Uh, yeah. So and then another thing about something like 80, 80 actually cuts across the country. Right. Mm-hmm. And it certainly cuts across California. It splits it in half. And that statement splits it in half is only untrue in areas where you know there is some way for animals to get from one side to the other. And so, for example, let's say a big river. Uh, so the Yolo Bypass goes under the causeway, uh, you know, the, the bypass of where the um, Sacramento River can go into flood stage. And there's a causeway, meaning it's an elevated part of the road. So animals could go underneath if they got there. There's other reasons they can't get there, uh, like noise, light, farming, towns, et cetera. But that's a place where you could expect, well, there might be some ability of of wildlife to move through. But 80 going through the high Sierras, uh, there's very few places where you have a big bridge where wildlife could go underneath. And so essentially, for most of the length of Interstate 80 in California, it does divide the state in half. Yeah, it makes it just a huge barrier, Um, which leads me to wonder about, I've heard a lot of talk about possible solutions, especially in California, about creating these wildlife corridors, um, ways for, you know, wildlife to be able to cross these artificial barriers we've created. Can you maybe address that a little bit for us? Sure, yeah. And first, I'll, I'll address the term wildlife corridors a little bit. There's not really any evidence that wildlife, most wildlife, uh, they just don't follow a narrow strip of land on on the landscape. Uh, For some species, caribou, uh, wildebeest, uh, you know, there's some famous species globally that follow the same path every year. Uh, In California, we have very few species that naturally migrate along a fixed, you know, path every year. So we don't really have anywhere that you'd call a corridor. I think what you you might be referring to is wildlife crossings. Okay. Yeah. And that's essentially where we build a basically a corridor across a highway, uh, a narrow area that they can cross through, usually associated or always associated with fencing. And so that idea is that if you put up barrier fencing, uh, and some people call it directional fencing, but there's no scientific evidence that the animals know which direction to go. So we'll call it barrier fencing. And then you put a crossing in the middle. The idea is that they can get safely from one side of that road to the other. Kind of trying to funnel funnel them to a place that's safe for them to go across. Yeah. And again, being a scientist, I have to be precise. And there's no evidence that they get funneled, mm-hmm. you know, so. I was just going to ask, how would they know, you know? Yeah, exactly. I've asked that of scientist colleagues who call it funnel fencing or directional fencing. Like, do you put a sign on the fence that tell <laughs> with an arrow saying which way to go? Because otherwise, how does the animal know which way to go? But basically, the idea is that if you put enough fencing up, um, they're going to wander along and they'll find that crossing. And there is some evidence that if you After years and years of that happening, they develop trails, wildlife trails. There's a smell. You know, they know where the other animals have gone, and they may tend to go that direction. So then they end up being more successful that way. 
but it is the it's the only way that we use uh, is this fencing and this crossings to try to solve this problem. It's not the only way to solve the problem, but it's the only way we currently try to solve the problem. What are some other methods that could be possible solutions? Well, there's the quote uh, on the front of our report, and it's from Ben Goldfarb, who's uh, author of a recent book on, it's called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. It's not a plug for his book, although it's a great book. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it right in front of me. I'll read it for you. The ultimate solution is to induce people to drive much less, more slowly, and not at night. And all I have to say is, good luck with that. Yeah, but that the way you respond to that, which I think is accurate when we think about society, mm-hmm. is that people just aren't going to do that, even if they know it's the right thing. And I don't think that's true about everything. I think that optimistically. Uh, the suffragettes in the early uh, 1900s, they thought, hey, we have the right to vote. And uh, the men said, no, you don't. We don't think so. And eventually that changed, right? And so we may think something's impossible, but it's a matter of work and say, okay, this is the right thing. It's a matter of working on it and making it happen. That, I think, is the solution, not to say, well, people are never going to be good, so we just have to give up on them. No, I don't. I don't agree with that. I think that people, a lot of people, are inherently good, and it's more of a question of okay, how can we find some kind of accommodation to make this work out? What would be? I'm trying to think of what would be some tools that you could use to induce people, you know, to drive more slowly, you know, drive less at night. You know, what are, yeah. what would be some ways to get people to, you know, to do that? Because what I observe yeah. in my own neighborhood is, you know, I'm constantly having to, you know, raise my hand up at people and drop my hand say, slow down, you know, because they're in a, you're in a neighborhood with little kids and people walking their dogs like me. But, you know, people just, you know, it's 45 and they're going to do 50. Yeah. Well, there's a direct relationship between a couple of things. One, the faster you go, the more likely you are to get into a crash, including with an animal. And the more you drive, the more likely you are to get into a crash, including with an animal. So we need we need to work on both those things. And uh, one of those speed is an enforcement issue. I drive more slowly because I might get a ticket. That is absolutely true. It's a, probably a weakness in my personality that I t- tend to drive fast, but I drive slower because I might get a ticket. So enforcement is critical. And then driving less, part of that is education. Uh, Part of that is gas prices, honestly. I think about my miles more now with these gas prices than I used to. And then part of it is uh, keeping everything close together. We developed a car culture uh, starting in the 50s, and we haven't really unraveled that. We haven't made it possible for people living in rural areas to access services they need. So you have to drive 30 miles to go to a food store. We we haven't worked on those things, but those are the kinds of things that would eventually result in us driving less. It doesn't mean not driving. Yeah. That's not the absolute. It's driving less. The less we drive, the less harm we cause. So it's a relative, you know, it's an equation there. Yeah. The less at night part would be, I would imagine, also difficult. Yeah. And that's also a safety thing as well. You know, it's... Um, I know I don't like to drive at night. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, li- I live in a suburban area. So driving at night is, you know, means a different thing than if I, I used to live out in the, more in the country. And it was definitely, I would think about it much more 
how much I wanted to drive on a curvy rural road. Um, and not just because of the wildlife is because of the other drivers, you know, mm-hmm. you, don't, exactly. you don't necessarily know if you're going to get through that. <laughs> so it does come back to the amount we drive and the behavior, you know, how fast we're going and driving at night. Because we think that's difficult, we have been working on wildlife crossings and wildlife crossings are a great idea, but, and this may sound subtle, but the fencing is really the really important thing when it comes to wildlife populations. Because if you don't have fencing, an animal might get hit and die, and a dead animal doesn't need a wildlife crossing. So, you know, the fencing is really, really critical uh, to keep animals off the road. And of course, all of this costs money when you talk about, you know, wildlife fencing. Are there ways you can go about just doing it the most effective way? In other words, like this is where we critically need wildlife fencing. And maybe here, you know, it would be nice, but, you know, we can't afford that. Well, how do you identify the places where you really want to put wildlife fencing? Right. Well, our report that's on our website on roadecology.ucdavis.edu, it as it as we do every year, we show the hot spots where putting in some fencing will help protect drivers. It'll help uh, protect wildlife, and the, so we can focus on those hot spots. It gets us part of the way there, but as you, at the beginning of what you said, it's about the money. And if we did not build a mile of extra highway, you know, in an urban area, let's say we didn't add a lane to an interstate in Los Angeles. Let's say we decided not to do that, and we saved that two to five billion dollars, and we turned that over into wildlife protection instead. We could definitely address a lot of these hotspots. Actually, most of the hotspots we've identified, you could address by just not adding an extra lane to Interstate 405 through Los Angeles. So when you balance it like that, then those things become much more affordable. I also saw something, and maybe this is kind of along those lines, called ecosystem crediting. What is that? So this is the idea that you can attach a value to nature. It's a bit controversial, and even though I've worked on it, which is why it's on our website, there's two ways we can think of value in that sense. One is the colloquial sense, meaning you walk outside on a beautiful day, and if you live in a rural environment, you look around, you see birds and plants and and dew on the grass, and you think, oh my God, this is so beautiful, and you have an appreciation, you value it. You value it for just being there. So that's a true use of the term value. Uh, It's actually the truest use of the term value. And then we can also take that and convert it into a dollar value and say, well, how much would I be willing to pay for this to not go away? How much am I willing to pay to keep it? And so then you can give something a dollar value. I don't think that's a great thing always because some things you can't measure with money, uh, faith, love or family, beauty, art. You know, there's so many things that are less tangible, but you can convert some of these things into dollar values. And then you can make the argument, look, we don't want mountain lions to go extinct in California. And all of us, 30 to 40 million of us, are willing to chip in I don't know. Let's say everybody pays $30 a year. So that's a billion dollars a year to keep mountain lines going. Right. I mean, that's 80 cents a week. Right. So it's it's not a huge uh, you're not really going to notice it. Most people, not everybody. And we need to really start thinking about it that way, because for some species in some places, 
the, the kinds of activities we're talking about, especially related to transportation, could result in us losing some of these iconic species. Yeah, and um, also from an ecological point of view, and you you know more about this than I do and can address it, but I would imagine that there's also a genetic component to this, that if if wildlife is unable to, you know, freely transfer their genetic material, you know, into other populations, you start to get populations that are, you know, becoming genetically weakened. Is, is that a, a, a concern? Yeah, absolutely. And so within a species like deer uh, or elk or mountain lion, if you separate them apart into small populations, then you're going to have uh, those kinds of genetic problems. And it can make those populations die out because they won't survive disease. They won't be able to adapt to new climate and things like that. And the other, another consequence of that is because all of these animals and of course the plants and, and, um, fungi and the microbes, they're all in a food web together. And if you cut off one of the pieces of, of a food web, just think about a spider web and you just touch it and you take out uh, a node in that spider web, it's going to kind of unravel for a, a distance. And we're we're doing the same thing when we affect uh, the each of these species in these food webs, in these ecosystems, we're causing it to start to unravel. And the worst case scenario is, I don't know, you look at some European countries where there's very few wildlife, there are some migratory birds, there's some native plants, but it's really a quite a different environment than it used to be. And that isn't, there's no longer a, an intact original ecosystem there. It's a new type of ecosystem with humans involved, but it's very much simplified. And that's the direction, that's where you can end up if you don't um, pay attention to to not disrupting the food web. So the genetic connection, the all the ways that these animals interact, uh, it's all critical to maintain those to keep nature going. If you're just joining us, our guest is Fraser Schilling. Dr. Schilling is the director of the Rhode Ecology Center at UC Davis, and we're exploring the interdisciplinary science of how nature is affected by our modern ground transportation infrastructure. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. And we're back. And thanks for listening. Let's return now to our conversation with Fraser Schilling, director of the Rhode Ecology Center at UC Davis. And something that uh, our producer, Matt Fiddler, mentioned to me uh, earlier today uh, that I thought was an interesting question is the notion that our animals, because of our roads and all of this infrastructure, are they learning to, you know, to avoid these places? Are, is, do we see any evidence of, you know, selecting for animals that decide, you know, no, I'm not going to go across there. I'm going to go somewhere where it's safer. Well, part of that is is true. Yeah, there's definitely some evidence that some animals in some places are learning. So there's urban coyotes that are have famously learned how to cross the street. It's it's doesn't mean that all coyotes know that. So if a coyote came in from the countryside, same species, you know, only 50 miles away and was put in that urban setting, they might immediately get hit by a car. So 
some animals in some places are adapting to, you know, what we think of as appropriate learned behavior for, for like not getting hit by a car. Um, but it's not easy to do. I, I've definitely, uh, not recently, uh, but when I was younger, tried to run across a busy road and almost failed. Ooh, so yeah. as a human, knowing exactly what cars do, I still almost blew it. You can imagine if you're a wild animal, you don't know what cars can do. You don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, there's no way to really predict that accurately uh, for them. And so that's why they get hit. So the the learning and adapting part, there's not really a good basis for that other than optimism. We want that to happen. Uh, it would certainly be more convenient for us, but um, it's not happening in a consistent enough way to protect wildlife from us. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's not, it's too bad you can't have a UC Davis class for the mountain lions and bring them in. It's like, okay, we're going to go over road safety with you guys and put you back out in the wild. <laughs> it's like... It's like that directional sign for where's the wildlife crossing. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, the same thing is true of people. Um, When you put up the signs that show deer crossing next 26 miles, I don't know how much effect that really has on people. You know, some some people like me start thinking, oh, I better keep an eye out. Because I I do, as somebody that lives in rural areas and drives a lot in in deer areas, I I keep my eyes on both sides of the road looking for wildlife because I don't want to have one of those kind of interactions. Yeah, yeah. And in my field, those signs famously don't work. And uh, transportation people have known that they don't work for quite a while, but they still occasionally put them up. I think that's happening less and less because it's becoming really, really clear that they people they don't, don't slow down. You don't have fewer crashes. So nothing really changes with those signs. I think originally, or for a while, the idea was the sign is cheaper than putting up some fencing, right? Ah, so, so you did something. You did a thing, right? And let's not study to see if it was effective, you know, but eventually that comes around and bites you and and you're like, okay, okay, so we have to do something different. I think that's where the state's at now. Um, California, over the last five years, I mean, I've been working on this stuff for quite a while. And over the last five years, there's been a massive change in how the state is treating roadkill uh, in terms of you know, wildlife vehicle collisions, animals dying on the road, uh, wildlife connectivity, which means their ability to move around in their habitat. And that's it's it's a it's a totally different environment now. There's proposed legislation. For example, there's a piece of legislation that's going to be introduced in the next session to improve our data collection. Uh, there's improved funding for new wildlife crossings. The Wildlife Conservation Board um, got a, a pretty significant chunk of money from the legislature, the government's proposed budget, and, and um, I think it's a close to a billion dollars to plan wildlife crossings in California. I mean, that's five, 10 years ago that we would never have imagined that. So the state, California has really stepped up recently to um, starting to protect wildlife. And have there been any initial um, projects that you could, you know, tell us about that do make you hopeful were you know, some success stories? Yeah, well, we still only have one wildlife overcrossing in California, which puts us behind a lot of Western states, um, almost all the other Western states. Uh, we have very few, but we have a, a lot in the works. And so the ones I'm aware of and a part of planning for I-5, US-395, US-101, uh, State Route 152, Interstate 8, there's a whole series of highways where People are planning for 
quite often for wildlife overcrossings. And I emphasize that because although they're this, they're a similar price to undercrossings, uh, like a bridge, if you put a bridge over a highway, it's often the same price as putting it under the highway, but they're more effective because you can make it into a land bridge. Uh, it's a term a student of mine used today is she had just noticed that the there were all these land bridges going in, basically connecting the land on one side of the highway to the land on the other. Uh, so those are those all of that activity makes me optimistic. But the thing that makes me the most optimistic is the when I work with Caltrans folks now, they feel like they have much more permission to do this. They feel like it's now part of their job to think about while getting wildlife safely across the road. And that is a totally new thing. Uh, it's so exciting. And I'm I'm really happy for them and I'm happy for us in the wildlife. Yeah. And if you were, you know, going to maybe give us your take on the ultimate design of, of a wildlife crossing like that, a land bridge, um, how would you go about designing it so that it's the most effective thing? What, what would you do? Right. Well, it harkens back to some, almost everything we've said to this point, right? So wildlife are afraid of roads and traffic. Uh, they're afraid of us. Um, they don't know that they have to go that direction. Uh, so you've got a lot of features that you have to kind of put together. Um, the, it starts off with the fencing. So you've got to have a lot of fencing to uh, make it so that animals are likely to find your crossing. That's that's the key, um, that they find it in the first place. Then when they're coming to that crossing, you don't want them looking at traffic the whole time. If they're looking at traffic, why would they come close? You know, why would you, if you're a wild animal, why would you walk towards the highway? Whereas if you protect it, that view uh, with berms, uh, sound barriers and things like that, then it makes it, even though they can probably kind of hear it in the distance, it muffles the sound, blocks the light. They can't see the moving cars. Then they're going to come to that crossing. So designing that crossing so that it looks like it's growing out of the forest, it's growing out of the meadow, and it's just like a little hill you have to go over to get to the other side. So that's kind of the perfect design of it. All that being said, uh, it's still, you know, as you might imagine, still kind of difficult to make it uh, so that you can't tell the traffic's there. You can't tell the road is there. You can still smell it if you're a wild animal. Um, you may have seen it from a distance. You can kind of hear it still. So it's it's not possible to design, to design it perfectly, uh, but certainly we can design it so it looks more like uh, the surrounding habitat. So it's a, a bit more conducive. And they would be, um, I imagine they would have plants on them, you know, the native plants to that area. Yeah. And so that it's going to feel, you know, pretty much like just the natural landscape to them as much as you can make it that way. Right, exactly. And this is really a new field. I mean, there's there have been wildlife crossings built consistently over the last 30 years, starting in Canada, but they were never really built for wildlife. They were built for our idea of what wildlife would want. So there's still some overcrossings that are almost bare dirt. Uh, there's still some where you can actually see the animal walking across, and that means the animal can see you. Uh, so, you know, the, the designs are really changing, and it, it's part of that idea I think is really becoming firmly established that we have to think about wildlife, not just where they're dying, not just that they need to cross the road, but what are they going to respond to? How do we make it good for them? And that principle is really going up and down through science, through government, you know, through the through society. It's 
uh, responding to this crisis in a positive way. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, places like yours, the UC Davis Center for Road Ecology, you know, you've got a lot of research going on in those directions. What are some of the interesting things you guys are working on towards a future like that? Well, first is just making sure we have the information to figure out where we should do that. Uh, Some of that comes from roadkill. I mean, that tells you where the animal didn't cross successfully. Uh, That's a lot of what we focus on. Um, There's also making sure we have uh, good information about where wildlife decide to go. And so usually that's with radio collars, GPS collars. You put them on different animals and they, they can tell you what they like. Then we can use that information to inform where is going to be a good spot for for wildlife crossing, for example, where's some good spots for fencing, for barrier fencing. And that that tells us about that immediate zone of conflict at the highway. But we also need to understand the much larger effect we're having through noise and light uh, and other kinds of effects that extend well beyond the roadway, the road edge and going into the surrounding habitat. That's an area I think is is, uh, the next frontier um, that we really need to solve because instead of just, if you just focus on the road, it's really a small part of the total landscape, but the real effect is well beyond that, uh, where instead of just say 1% of California is affected by a road, it's really 20%, you know, and then that changes the equation significantly. So uh, how far away from a road would you have to get to where you would say, you know, this this is how far you need to be away from a road for the wildlife to really have negligible effects? Right. Well, you can, you can, anybody, <laughs> you can tell that for yourself. So they have, uh, I mean, just literally, you could go and test this out yourself. They have better hearing and eyesight than us usually, not always. Uh, but generally speaking, mm-hmm. you know, they they have to be like that. We don't we don't get preyed on as often, um, but they have to be like that. And so, if you go to a even a not super busy highway, uh, depends where you live. But let's say you picked Interstate Five. That's a central highway in California. Start at the edge and walk away. Um, let's say you walk two miles an hour. So in half an hour, you're uh, a mile away, and see if you can still hear the highway. Uh, and chances are you probably can and that means an animal can right a wild animal so uh unless you've gone behind a hill unless the wind is blowing you know away from you towards the highways things like that then you may not hear it but you're certainly going to hear it for a while and that distance um, is going to be at least the distance that most wild animals can hear it and there really is something magical if you do get to go out to a very quiet, natural place where you don't hear any sounds of human beings. That, to me, that's that's really good therapy. Yeah, and, and if it's good for us, then you can imagine it's going to be good for wildlife because they they are not adapted to that sound. It serves no purpose for them. For us, you know, roads are how we get around, how our goods and services get around. We economically rely upon them, so we understand the benefits. It's a it's a trade off that we're willing to accept. But for wild animals, there's no positive, there's no upside to them. And uh, kind of lastly, when, when you look at the UC Davis Center for uh, uh, Road Ecology there, I would imagine it's very interdisciplinary. Can you tell us about the, the kinds of people you have working with you? 
Sure. Yeah. Well, one fun thing, we've just been going through intern interviews. And so uh, I have any usually anywhere between six and a dozen. This year, I'm going to have 16. And it's it's a very diverse crowd in, in their gender, ethnicity, and so on, income class, where they're coming from. And their interests are very diverse, too. And the reason I'm bringing them up is that it really helps to sponsor that um, interdisciplinary research that is so critical because it's, uh, you know, just like society, you pull on part of it and, and a lot of things come with it. And transportation is, is so integral to so many things we do that we really need to understand a lot of parts of it all at once. So we study sound, we study light, uh, we look at sea level rise and climate change, look at roadkill, we look at the, if, uh, where the animal doesn't try to cross the road, we look at animal behavior, uh, all of a huge variety of things um, to understand that that total impact, that diverse impact. Uh, and then having us um, this sort of integrated view and integrating that with uh, appreciating diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in society and in our own student body, uh, connecting with community organizations. Uh, it allows us to not just do academic research, but really participate in society as a as a scientific force, you know, a, a source of information and education. Yeah, certainly. I know nature nature values diversity, and uh, we can always take lessons from nature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And people, you know, some people are afraid of diversity. I I think that there's a real there's some fears that have that have come about over time in evolution of people um fear of a dark forest fear of things that aren't like you people that aren't like you uh anything new um but actually that helps us to understand wildlife response to humans um because essentially we're their aliens right exactly there's no reason why they should have any understanding of us or know what we're going to do next and so they're afraid of us. And and just like if aliens landed on Earth, we would be uh, legitimately afraid of them and, and not necessarily know how to anticipate their. Um, so that fear, sometimes it's really useful and uh, wildlife are afraid of us, but I don't think we should be afraid of each other. And so I, I really appreciate the diversity side of our work in, in academia. Well, Fraser Schilling, uh, director of the UC Davis Road Ecology Center, thanks for being with us and sharing all this information about an important topic that, you know, a lot of us don't think about except when we, you know, literally look to the right side of the road and see a, a dead animal and we feel bad about it, most of us. Uh, it's, it's an interesting topic and, you know, something that we definitely uh, need to improve upon as a society. Yeah, it's been my real pleasure talking to you. I love your um, insightful questions and, and I hope that your audience got something out of it. So thank you very much. Thanks again to our guest, the director of the UC Davis Road Ecology Center, Fraser Schilling. You can learn more about their work at roadecology.ucdavis.edu. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. 
Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.